Hey there, welcome to the Agentic Voice podcast where we explore topics related to vocal freedom and trauma-informed voice care. My name is Kristen Ruiz and I'm here with my co-host, Dr. Geneva Main. And our guest today is fellow singing voice specialist, Megan Durham. So we are so excited to have you here, Megan. And in today's episode, we'll be discussing ideas around dignity and voice, along with some short somatic practices, you can start implementing right away. So let me tell you a little bit about Megan's bio. So Megan serves on the voice faculty at the University of Louisville and works as a singing voice specialist where she collaborates with medical professionals to habilitate singers who have experienced vocal injury. She incorporates a trauma-informed approach to voice care and facilitates movement for trauma, yoga voice, life force yoga, and transcending sexual trauma through yoga. Megan is a member of the Voice and Trauma Research and Connection Group and is a frequent clinician for choral and vocal groups throughout the country, including the uh, National Association of Teachers of Singing, VATSA, Vocology in Practice, the Voice Foundation, and the American Choral Directors Association. So Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. So <laughs> glad to have you. I've been looking forward to this. We had wanted to have you um, in the fall, but we couldn't uh, get our schedules to jive. So we're so excited to start out this uh, year with you. Our first segment is what's new and what's good. Um, and I have nothing new and good to share, guys. <laughs> I have been a literal blob. <laughs> I haven't been doing anything. <laughs> so is the good getting some well-deserved rest? <laughs> I guess. Like I haven't gone anywhere. I haven't gone out. I haven't. I'm just chilling, Netflixing, <laughs> and I'm enjoying that unashamedly. You know, I think, you know, the laws of the harvest. There's a time to like rest the field, right? So, I think the good thing, Geneva, might be just taking some time to whew, relax that decompress. nervous system. Yeah, decompress, regroup. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, as a, as a mom of two, we were talking before we started recording. But as a mom of two small uh, children, your what's new and what's good sounds amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, Megan, what's what's good or what's new with you? Thank you so much for asking. I think this is a lovely way to start. So, I I feel like in this particular moment, I am feeling um grateful for connection and a general sense of community mm. um i think in both my professional and personal lives I, I i felt isolated for a really long time i think a lot of people resonate with that um covid and also again as a, as a parent that that comes into my life quite frequently and um i'm so grateful for colleagues lately that i've been able to connect with that offer um, affirmation but also accountability Mm. Um, people that I can go to, um, to get, um, for to, whose, whose view I, I really respect and whose view might challenge me, um, which is always a little uncomfortable sometimes, but I think is so necessary, particularly in the work that we're unpacking today. So, um, 
yeah, I, I think what's new and what's good is that I'm feeling not alone. <laughs> nice. Oh, That's important. That yeah. That is good. You know, we used to joke around um, with, with some other voice teachers and say, like, we all feel like we're in our studio caves. Like, you stay in the cave because you're all, like, a lot of us are doing a lot of one-to-one or in small groups and that kind of thing. And, like, you peek your head out and you're like, is there an outside world? So any kind of chance for collaboration, connection, Oh my goodness, an iron sharpens iron, right? Every time we have a conversation, we're stretched. So um, my what's good and what's new, actually, Megan, is cousins of what you're talking about. Like, um, I'm really appreciating um, the connection with colleagues. So, you know, we got to do our last podcast episode was streaming with Pava. So that was a great experience. We got to meet some new people in the field who were just as, you know, passionate about, you know, freeing singers. Um, a friend of mine says, uh, free people, free people, right? So, mm. um, you know, it, it's it's a work of light uh, when we allow mm. it to be. So it was great to stream with them. And I've been working with um, my team and we've been innovating new strategies, new iterations of ways to train singers that, you know, it's, it's about being as effective and efficient and life-giving as, as we can and just keep taking those steps. So it's that for me, it, it's really celebrating, you know, passionate colleagues. So that that's mm. kind of where I am because we're watching the results of that and the ripple effects have been very um, empowering and life-giving as opposed to disempowering and <laughs> the kinds of energies that that take energy away. So, so that's where I am. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So let's jump in. Um, Megan, your, your work clearly involves a trauma-informed approach, right, to voice, and you've had a paper recently published in the Journal of Singing, and I need to say, especially for those who have not had the opportunity to read it yet, I was really struck by the holistic way that you wove the research together for this piece. Like, you presented a lens of interdisciplinarity that you wove it in a, in a cohesive way that shifts the camera angle onto aspects of the singing experience that, uh, at least in my experience, has often fallen into the shadows. So I wanna share a couple um, uh, little nuggets from that piece and how I thought it was really interesting. You talked about the physiology and the nervous system, but you also included references to forces and contributing factors beyond physiology you know, even beyond mm-hmm. cognition and matters of our own will. So for mm-hmm. instance, when you when you said like so-called vocal faults come up, you know, you said these can be habituated involuntary nervous system responses, you know, so that idea of vocal faults, you know, not just being the fault themselves, but saying that these are involuntary nervous uh, system responses that have been habituated. And then you said, we can reframe how we interact with all singing bodies, treating any response with dignity and reverence. And so I think that uh, that idea of like when a vocal fault comes up, so-called, that recognizing that there's a lot of contributing factors to that beyond mm-hmm. just cognition, will, desire, you know, like, and, and the things within mm-hmm. our immediate touch, right? Um, And Mm. then you touched on issues of identity. And I don't know if it was on purpose or not, but it actually echoed of transformative learning theory and um, Mm. Robert Keegan's constructive development theory. It's it's the impact of our identity, our sense of ourself and the power that that holds. And you said, it is acknowledging multiple truths about our body. Like I have an injury 
and I am resilient, you know, so that I am resilient and I am versus I have. So um, in cognitive uh, development theory, it talks about like there's things that we are, you know, and then there's things that we can behold. And I, I thought it was interesting that you unpacked that. And you also said the multiple truths would be like in our mind, like I experience depression and I am powerful that these can coexist. And you said, and our voice, mm. I feel afraid to sing and my voice has agency. And you know that that word caught my attention. So, you know, but that idea that there can be multiple truths in our body and honoring what we are experiencing and who we are and not always, you know, and just kind of acknowledging the relationship between those. I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. And then you noted the meaning making lens of the voice care worker, you know, because all of us are meaning making machines. And this part reminded me of Dr. Dweck's work on growth mindset research. Mm -hmm. You said to a trauma informed voice teacher, each student provides a new opportunity to learn, to stumble, to apologize when harm has, has been done, and perhaps most importantly, to do our own work of self-realization and accountability. So there's really this idea of not a fixed mindset and that we have to be you know, scared of new experiences, but to take each opportunity to grow and stumble and learn and, and look at ourselves and, and you know, I think while we're developing the singing voice, there's also our own voice, our own personhood that's developing. And then the last piece that I was like, oh my goodness, uh, we need to go out for, <laughs> for some tea or something. Um, another piece of the puzzle that you, you said, um, actually literally you said, another piece of the puzzle is recognizing our position of power. And in the conclusion, you said we can make considered choices about how our words and practices invite well-being, continually affirming that all bodies, all voices deserve to take up physical and acoustic space. I if that didn't get an, a loud amen for me, like no, like, it absolutely did. And it kind of echoes of um social constructivist theories and Foucault's uh, theory of power, where they propose that knowledge mm. and power are intimately bound together, and that we need to look at these, these power systems just inherent in the learning process. So I just thought that the holistic lens, uh, the trauma-informed lens was super interesting how there was actually many pieces woven together, really stretching us to a new understanding. So Megan, I, I need to ask, uh, since a lot of us didn't come to this information, you know, in our undergrad or grad training, right? Like we trip into it elsewhere. So can you share a little bit, how did you get interested in this kind of work? Thank you so much for reflecting all of that back. I, I kind of just want to name in my body. It's like, um, I'm one of those people that receiving um, the way that you so gifted to me is um, really warm and also hard sometimes to hear ref reflected back so beautifully. So um, I'm really quite grateful. Um, I did not set out, to, I think, uh, uh, like a lot of us, um, I, I really didn't set out to offer trauma-informed work um, so much as it unfolded as part of my own personal journey. Um, it definitely started with me uh, finding ways for me to reconnect and um, remember uh, parts of myself that um, parts of my identity. Um, and then I think, um, so first and foremost, the tools that I have gathered um, are things that I have found integrative um, in my own experience. And then having sort of said that um, as a scaffolding, after I got my master's degree, I began practicing and studying uh, the sacred uh, teaching of yoga 
and which sort of led me down one personal path of integration. And at the same time, I was training with Dr. Karen Wickland, um, who has since passed um, um, to become a singing, uh, singing voice specialist. And as I began working with folks that were really navigating vocal injury, um, it started to become clear that a lot of the folks that I was working with um, were experiencing and self-reporting um, chronic stress and PTSD. Um, and I, I felt like I needed more ways to offer them a particular kind of resource. First and foremost, I needed to offer myself resource <laughs> so that I had capacity um, to be uncomfortable. And, and I'll just kind of name from the beginning, when people asked me, ask me, you know, um, oh, are you trauma-informed? I say, I don't know. <laughs> um, that's for that's for you to choose because this I, I think this work is relational. I don't it, you cannot do it in isolation, and so I honestly don't know. I try to be as resourced as possible. I try to have information, and then um, my biggest task in this is sitting in the muck um, and sitting in the mess without having an answer all the time. Um, and so I need a resource. I for like myself that for point, that. Megan. I'm just going <laughs> to jump you. into that. Yeah, this please. just because the idea of I can be trauma informed for some people, but not for others, depending on what I know about their lived experience or how I can understand their experiences. Um, yeah. I think that it's relational and it has to do with what the person who you're working with thinks about your um, your knowledge and skill set. I, I that's it's humble, it's humility. Um, and I think when we're working towards cultural humility, knowing that everyone comes with their own set of cultural facets, um, recognizing that you might be trauma informed for some people, but not for others is hugely legit. Yeah, and it, it shifts the, the power. It becomes more egalitarian if we can em embrace that idea that trauma informed is a co-created you know, experience. It definitely. Um, it's so wonderful to um, be in a space like this where, where we can take that thread and pull on it. Because um, I, I do think that often like trauma is unfortunately it, it sells. It's very trendy right now, particularly in Instagram therapy. And I'm if you don't see me, I'm doing air quotes. Um, and I think it really trivializes folks who are living with the very real pain of uh, PTSD and CPTSD to, um, you know, it's not a certification that we get in a weekend. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> it's just an ongoing journey of, of mess and stumble and, and repair. In fact, um, sometimes I sort of think, you know, everybody's all, um, everybody likes to talk about safety. And Geneva, to your point, um, we can't guarantee safety. That is a big ask too. That's a big thing to try to shoulder. Um, and uh, so I think for me, what I'm interested in is offering repair when it's necessary. Um, and kind of where I am right now is offering not necessarily a safe space, but um, a play space, um, which doesn't bypass the pain. And in fact, going back to that both end, we can honor um, the experience that's happening right now and then find together ways to come back into the body and reorient and remember singing as a source of joy. Um, mm -hmm. So trauma it, the word rarely really ends up in, in, in the space that I work, um, joy and awe, those words are usually what end up entering the space. Nice. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your journey into, into this work. So 
Um, well, let's see, I, after graduate school, so I, I, I was doing my um, singing voice certification the same time I was practicing yoga. And um, again, seeing um, um, that I needed to find more resource for, for, for everyone involved. And uh, that led me down a couple different paths. Um, I have several backgrounds in um, uh, yoga. Um, life force yoga, I'll highlight um, because it's primarily um, for anxiety, depression, and trauma. And then from there, I studied with Zabi Yamasaki, um, who has a really wonderful program, um, yoga uh, specifically for uh, sexual trauma. And then um, after that, I studied with Jane Clapp and her work in movement for trauma. Uh, and uh, um, we'll probably name her as well as a couple others today as we go along. So I think what I would want, really want listeners to understand that part of what most people would agree um, being trauma informed is that one of the big things is that once you begin to really understand the scope and the prevalence of trauma and adverse experiences that people are going through, and you begin to even, you know, take that lens with yourself and realize what you've passed through and how it's affected your relationships. One of the things that a lot of trauma informed people do is they start equipping themselves that they can be helpful in of service to other people it's just like a natural progression so it's not something where you get to a point and you say i'm trauma informed going back to that first point that i really liked because you're constantly looking for that next thing that can you know help you to you know bring safety quote unquote and joy and peace to other people because we can all relate to you know, the distress of, you know, an adverse or traumatic experience. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for many of us, that empathetic drive says, how can I make it easier for someone else? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's, that's one of the core pieces of being trauma informed Mm -hmm. is just equipping yourself to create spaces for people where they can at least begin to feel safe that they can begin to feel joy and peace and things like that Mm -hmm. so you know as you're talking about your journey how long did that all of that take (laughs) because that list sounds like a lot of things (laughs) it sounds like more than a degree actually (laughs) (laughs) probably about 15 years i've been going on you know i feel like i'm a giant sponge you know i love how you worded that um and I, I, I soak it up and then I wring it out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's a little flippant. So, you know, but I, but I do think I love what you said, Geneva. It's, it really is just a constant journey of gathering and receiving and holding and giving away and doing right. it all again. Right. Awesome. It's kind of like curating. You know? yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, and I love that uh, you quoted um, Stacey Haynes with um, saying that, you know, it's about safety, belonging and dignity. And Mm. I think that like, just to keep looking for ways to, to enhance and amplify these ideas of safety, Mm -hmm. belonging and dignity. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm I'm wondering, I don't want to jump ahead too soon. But because of that word dignity, it sort of keeps popping up a lot. I'm wondering if it would be if it would feel fun. And I always sort of use that. um, where no is always celebrated. So if, if someone's listening and this would not feel fun, then please choose no. Um, but if it would feel fun, I'm wondering if we might engage in a bit of a, a somatic practice around the word dignity. And I want to name that this practice was um, taught to me, uh, was communicated to me 
through a really brilliant somatic practitioner, uh, Kai Cheng Tom. I, I'll put a link. Um, I think we can add that to the notes. Kai Cheng Tom um, is just a really prolific writer and trans uh, justice activist, among so many other things. So I want to honor her uh, as I share this. Um, so if it feels uh, if it feels right for you in this moment, uh, we'll start by getting more comfortable. <laughs> what is more comfortable like? in this moment for you. <laughs> hmm. I'm going to slouch because that feels more comfortable to me. And then in any gesture that feels that feels right, I'm going to invite you to breathe into the word dignity. And as we breathe into the word dignity, maybe there is an upward moving gesture with the palms, with the arms or with the hands perhaps subtly or perhaps not so subtly lifting the arms upward, noticing what it's like to rest in dignity, to breathe in dignity, to move in dignity. Perhaps there's a color or an image that's coming into your mind. And then from here, I'll invite us to turn our palms downward, perhaps finding the ground, pressing into the ground with the toes or perhaps pressing into the tops of the thighs if that's available with the hands. Breathing now into the word humility. Sensing into the word humility in the body. Again, maybe a color or an image or a felt sense or a movement comes to mind. And then once more, turning the palms upward, opening the heart center, going back to our space of dignity, going back here, remembering dignity in the body, asking ourselves, can I find humility here as well? Can I bring humility into my dignity? Can I pull that up here? Can they both coexist? And then finally turning the palms downward, going back into the gesture of humility, remembering that initial feeling, asking, can I find dignity here? Can I bring dignity upward into my humility? I can rest in both my worth and my humbleness. And when you're ready, returning back into our shared space. That was so powerful. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Mm. Yep. You know, when we were doing this, uh, the dignity, the upward gestures, mm -hmm. I immediately felt royal. Honestly, I had like this Lord. idea of myself as a queen. Seriously, like I'm in my little chair in my office, but it became a throne. <laughs> I could and everything was purple and gold. <laughs> Purple, black, and gold. I mean, it was just like awesome. <laughs> I see it. 
That's amazing. <laughs> yes. And the co-informing of those two energies that mm. in some ways can be, you know, uh, unpacked as separate, but then weaving them together and letting them interact and, and blend. Powerful thoughts. Yeah. Mm. And it strikes me, you know, even though it was very much a somatic practice with us focusing on breath and our bodies, um, there was the mindful awareness of those concepts, um, Mm -hmm. which I think is so important for people who have experienced adversity or Mm -hmm. trauma, because often there's Mm -hmm. this feeling of inferiority and why me Mm -hmm. and um shaking of the self-esteem and things that come along with and shame we've talked about shame before in our podcast these things can often come along with with trauma so helping people to kind of reflect on those powerful concepts of your inherent dignity as a human being Mm -hmm. you know and dignity doesn't mean that you have to act like you're better than other people you know it does come with humility because you recognize inherent dignity of everyone around you i think that's just a very powerful practice. I really enjoyed that one. The, the oh, other so piece glad. is the, um, I'm always fascinated with uh, when there's challenges in the body, in the mind, how physiology also can be part of the pathway to healing and restoration and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So I think even mm-hmm. the motion of the physicalization and using physiology to mm-hmm. talk to the parts of the system that are beyond cognition. Um, mm. I, I think there's so much more to be learned in that sphere. So thank you for bringing that, you know, a taste of that in, because I, I think there might be a new frontier in there, you know? Yes. So was the person who created this, I can't remember the name. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, was this person a somatic experiencing practitioner? I believe Kai Cheng, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to say too much. I'd have to go back and, and, and I'm sure that there are some, I feel like there is some somatic experiencing, but um, Kai Cheng has studied um, extensively. Um, I, I believe practiced as a therapist at one time, gotcha. um, but I, I, we can include um, the link um, to her work, which is incredibly powerful. She does a lot of conflict resolution, uh, a lot of uh, uh, what's named a sexological body work, which is um, um, around consent, actually, mm-hmm. um, coming from sort of the sex work tradition um, and how we can and and um, how we can learn from 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 that um, really unique and, and beautiful and empowered world. Um, so it, it, there's a lot there. Um, there's, a, there's a lot there. So I would encourage you to check out her information. Awesome. Thank you for bringing her work forward. So one of the reasons that the dignity practice kind of, um, comes to my mind is, um, when I think about an agentic, uh, practice, mm-hmm. um, and I, and when I, when I think about particularly drawing out the trauma-informed principle of empowerment, voice, and choice, um, I, I think particularly around offering choices, my mind centers first on this idea of dignity because, and, and sort of how can we offer vocal dignity? Um, I think this is, we are not gonna answer this question today, so <laughs> spoiler, um, but I, I, think, I think in order to offer choice in the first place, in order to see consent as a spectrum, not a binary yes and no, but a continual conversation in relationship, is really to be able to first honor someone's personhood. 
Um, I love the Audre Lorde quotation that it's not our differences that divide us, but our inability to recognize, accept, and celebrate those differences. So I think first really leaning into this idea that dignity honors difference so that when we're able to honor that difference in voices, in bodies, in cultures, um, that my yes may be someone else's no way, <laughs> right? We are then able to offer a more authentic choice in the first place. Then I think from their consent is a conversation around me getting curious about what choices you might make and then being secure enough in my own embodied knowing to handle your choices, right? Particularly when they're different than mine, particularly when there's conflict, particularly when your choice is no. Um, so I think for me, offering empowered choices, offering consent um, is first knowing what yes and no feel like in my body <laughs> so that I can more clearly offer that and receive that from others. That's interesting because <laughs> I was speaking with a friend uh, just in the last week about no. And he said to me, your no feels like a rejection. And I said, wow, but I'm still here. I haven't gone anywhere. And I don't know why my no feels like a rejection to you, but it's not. It's just a no. And it's no is such a, lo a loaded thing for people, right? And I want to be really clear. Um, I'm fascinated by this because it's really hard for me, Geneva. I am somebody <laughs> who experiences no as a deep personal wound. Even if you say no, Megan, I don't want that cupcake that you made. <laughs> you know. So I want to be really clear. This is something I really deeply struggle with. So, um, yeah. Um, but I but I think when I think about um, to kind of I, I guess tail into singing the singing space specifically or, or really the clinical space i mean as a speech pathologist um the western classical voice lineage i think has a real long history of non-consensual pedagogy um unfortunately and, and this discourse is really being highlighted by a lot of places now but that sort of historical master apprentice model um this is something I, I think about a lot. It, it often operates under a, an assumed deficiency paradigm. So we sort of assume in this model historically that the purpose of a voice lesson is to walk in and then walk out somehow different than we are. Um, and that we are in need of fixing and that our voices need to change to be better. Um, and that someone who doesn't inhabit our singing body has that knowledge. <laughs> that someone has this like, omniscience over my body um, that I don't have. So I, 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 I'm, I'm really fascinated by this idea of like, what messages are our bodies and our voices constantly internalizing when we're asking, what do I need to optimize all the time without also asking what's present, what's present now? Um, and I think, I'll bring another person into this. Uh, so Nadia Boltz Weber, who's just a, another just really wonderful writer, um, has has a great phrase that dignity, um, the opposite of dignity is dominance. Mm. And mm -hmm. I I think historical models of teaching voice um, often celebrate this normative 
um, sort of sound hegemony where everything is sort of the same. We're not honoring this difference at all. In fact, we're trying to make everyone sort of this, this mold, right? Um, and I, I think that viewing voice work is so, it's so ubiquitous to think of it this way that most people don't think to question it. Um, that they do have choice, they do have agency, and that the voice teacher is not in charge of the student's body. Um, um, and that power over structure, again, not allowing for, dis, uh, for difference and, and really not honoring the personhood um, of the folks that we're working with. Nice. How do you reconcile this? Because um, when I think about, you know, uh, singers who they're, they're wanting to express something that sounds on the outside the way they feel it on the inside, right? And then, mm -hmm. and at some point, sometimes there's, uh, th there's obstacles in their way. Maybe it's a technical, physiological, you know, acoustical issue, or it could be mindset, it could be all kinds of different things that could, that could cause that. Mm -hmm. So the idea of, you know, saying, hey, you, like where does where does the role of like helping somebody find free function you know how does how does that align with saying i i i'm stepping back and you know you get to make all the choices like how how do those fit mm. together or how do you see them fitting together that's a great question and there's so many wonderful people talking about this um i'll name shannon coates is one um that i know does a lot of work around this topic um and i and i think um if I could take a step back for a moment and then kind of come come back, I think to your question, um, which ultimately I think we're going to co-creation <laughs> um, around this, but I think often we talk about choice and consent. Um, the conversation centers on touch, which can be certainly very impactful. Um, in my own teaching, I, I don't touch my students for a lot of reasons. Um, I'm not saying other people shouldn't, but that's my choice. Um, and certainly in clinical sessions, massage and all these things can be really quite healing. Um, but I think this conversation of offering consent, offering choices goes way beyond touch. Um, I think consent in the singing voice space extends to our intentions. So, so what is my intention as a singer, as a, as a, as a teacher about the space um, that, I'm, that, I'm inter that I'm creating um, and, and the sound building process and the skill building process whose goals am I honoring with this exercise, <laughs> right? Insert anything, right? Um, choosing repertoire, um, especially when we're asking bodies to move in new ways, when we're inviting a new somatic practice, when we're inviting a new vocalese, so when we're inviting, you know, anything that might be coming to your mind. I think asking bodies to do new things is particularly tri tricky when there has been trauma. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think, Kristen, one of the, to kind of, I don't have a great answer, but I think something that's coming to my mind now is that when we're operating from a consensual place, a place that invites folks into a co-creative learning process, um, is that what we are doing? Or are we operating from coercion where the learning is actually just compliance to and for the dominant power in the room? Hmm. I, I think that's really powerful. That idea of like dominance compliance. I think a lot of us can think of training experiences 
where those were the operating energies in the space <laughs> as opposed to yeah. something more egalitarian co-created um, mm -hmm. and, and where it's kind of like <laughs> like all the stuff is put out on the table and you work it out together of like where right. where things yeah. are going to go yes yes yeah well I love some that. people some people don't believe co coercion is there if the person has complied mm. do you have any thoughts on that <laughs> i'm just curious because you know, if the person goes along or agrees, you know, uh, uh -huh. and is it coercion or did they exercise <laughs> agency and choice? What do you, what are your thoughts on that? I think Gosh, that's a hard that's, question. <laughs> that, that's a really, that's a really hard question. And I, I guess I would have to go to embodied knowing um, and sort of this concept that often is tossed about in the polyvagal uh, world of neuroception and is my body, not my head, so not the story in my head saying yes or no, but what is my body saying? And I think this is why we think of consent on a spectrum, because sometimes my body is saying absolutely, and my head is saying that is not a good idea, or, or, vice, <laughs> or, or vice versa, um, right? And everything in between. So I don't have a, I do, I do not have an answer. I rarely have answers. Um, I, I live in questions most of my life, but I do think going to the body first and saying, you know, if a student says no to me, which I, I usually celebrate all the time. In fact, um, it's a little bit of a running joke in my studio, but I'm, you know, uh, I, I sort of, I'm always known to say, please say no, let's celebrate no, which is also really hard for some people at first mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and may always be hard. Um, but what's interesting is if someone says no, one question I often reflect back is what in your body is saying no? to you that makes you, you know, verbalize that so that there's this check-in somatically as well as cognitively. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if that gets at it at all, but um, I think just being aware that there could be conflict between those things, particularly when it comes to issues of compliance. My head is saying this, you know, my clinician is telling me to do this, but my body is saying, I, I, I don't know about that. Can we have a conversation about that? I think is, is kind of what we're saying. Maybe not an answer, but a conversation. Yeah. Maybe. Conversation is surely important. And I'm sorry, I cut you off, Kristen, but I wanted to say this point. Um, I really like that you're cluing us in on thinking about the embodied choice. Um, what is the body saying? Because you know, certainly we don't share nervous systems. I don't know if your body's telling you yes or no. <laughs> but, you know, we can read facial expressions and body languages, and we can certainly create spaces where people feel safe to express, you know, what they're thinking and feeling. Certainly as the people in positions of power, as clinicians and practitioners, mm -hmm. we need to create those spaces where people feel comfortable to say yes or no. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that actually reminds me of um, I had a colleague once who was talking about going back into a, a, a toxic work environment. And mm -hmm. as she was talking about going back mm -hmm. in, she had, she had an opportunity to choose like to go do it or to choose something else. And as she's talking about going back, literally, I'm watching her like her actual physical structure was getting smaller and smaller. The she face was contracting. 
contracting in the most literal sense and and at the end i said i hear you saying that you're gonna go back i just want you to check in with your body because it might have a different opinion just you you do that check-in but i literally watched her go in but the other thing that i thought megan that you brought up was which is super interesting um as an adjunct thought to what geneva asked about you know is is uh compliance you know, is that agency because they made the choice, you know, and it makes me think about, you know, the privilege of being the one in power because, mm. and that's where, you know, you brought in humility, that idea of dignity and humility. And I think as for those who, who really do care about um, connecting and being honoring of the, the human souls around us um, to continually hone and, and nourish that sense of humility saying like, even as I'm trying to make this as equal and co-created as possible, there's still an element where if you're the leader in the room, there's an element of power there and to not assume, you know, and, and mm. to, I think that idea of, you know, that privilege of having that power in the space requires us to take the onus of responsibility to say, hey, are you know, really checking in with our bodies and, and with the verbal and visual cues that we're getting, is that yeah. compliance or is that true, truly agency and really mm -hmm. unpack the difference between them? So, and you're the one who brought that there, thought to our, our minds. Yeah. Uh, there's, um, and, and I've, I've uh, so many of my thoughts are really, you know, because I've had the privilege to, to, to learn from, from some really wonderful folks. Um, I'm gonna name Betty Martin who I, I have not uh, studied with, but um, she has a wonderful book called The Wheel of Consent. Um, she's a somatic sex educator. And um, one of the questions that she often asks is what are we doing and who is it for? Hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that really speaks to that, the, to the dignity and humility piece. And I often come back to that even in small things even repertoire choices, or um, I don't, I don't know, like uh, crafting a syllabus, or you know, any anything, any task I might do in the smallest way. What am I doing, and who is this for? And I'll tell you, nine times out of ten, oh, that's for me, is often what's coming into my mind. And and if it is for me, that's not always a bad thing, but it's important for me to to have a conversation with myself about that. Um, so I, I offer that um, because it's been a really helpful framework for, for my own work. Yes, and I, I think, you know, as um, it's a question that everyone should ask themselves, whether you are in the position of power or whether you're not, you know, because as people who experience adversity or trauma, sometimes there's that people pleasing response that kicks in where for your own safety, you feel like you have to keep the peace and comply and, and, you know, make everyone happy and don't, you know, um, ruffle any feathers. Uh -huh. And so that, that response can be very, very much trained in people. Um, yeah. So it's a great question. Who is this for? Is it for me or is it for someone else that I'm trying to make yeah. happy? Mm -hmm. yeah. And when we've experienced trauma, there is often great wisdom in not being able to say or feel into yes or no depending upon which of those was the protective and necessary strategy for survival. Mm -hmm. um, so, so yeah, that both can be very tricky to give and receive, I think. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
Well, mobility of language, mobility physically, that, that can be in question for, for somebody who's experienced trauma. Yeah. yeah, this was a great conversation and, and we have to wrap up, unfortunately. So um, to kind of end up our episode, do you mind leading us in another uh, somatic practice before I give the closing? I'd love to. Um, and this um, we'll do it relatively uh, quickly in our time today, um, but I encourage you to maybe do it again at another time uh, if it feels like you'd like to go slower. This practice was inspired uh, by also Kaiching Tom and um, Jane Clapp, who I mentioned earlier, who is a Jungian somatic practitioner. So more comfortable is always the invitation to start. Whatever more comfortable feels like in the body in this moment, and if it feels fun, I invite you to engage in this practice. When you're ready, breathe into the word yes. Breathing into the word yes in the body, taking your time. Are there any sensations, images, or colors that come up for you? Noticing if your body wants to open or close, or if movement feels invited with the word yes. Yes. And then next, breathing into the word no. No. If it feels helpful in any of these, you might even speak them aloud or to yourself. Noticing any images or colors or movement if the body wants to open to no or wants to close. And finally, breathing into the word maybe. Maybe. And sometimes maybe is a placeholder because we need time and other times maybe is actually no, but we need time to figure out how to communicate that. How does my body open or close to the word maybe? Inhaling to the crown of the head, I am. Exhaling to the soles of the feet, here. And returning to our shared space. Hmm. That was great. I love these. Mm -hmm. For me, the yes felt joyful and the no felt powerful. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So I'm going to, I'm just going to do a quick plug because I know that you and Carol Krusenmark are going to do some kind of a workshop soon. It's coming up, mm -hmm. isn't it? Can you tell us a little bit it's about it? I can. It's on Saturday, um, so <laughs> really soon. Um, but we will hopefully offer it again. Um, we're mm -hmm. doing a workshop, um, leaning into discomfort, which is actually very similar to some of the things we talked about today. Um, noticing how yes and no, particularly no, shows up when we're working with students or clients. That sort of that discomfort of I'm not sure what to do right now in my body. <laughs> noticing that and having some tools to navigate that. Cool. All right. 
Um, so let me jump into the closing. In this episode, we talked about how empowerment, voice and choice are a key principle of a trauma-informed voice care and what this looks like in the singing studio. When we empower our students or clients by providing choices, we are building upon their individual strengths and experiences and sharing decision-making. We also engaged in some somatic practice around the concepts of dignity, humility, and consent. That was great. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you, Megan. Thank you all so much. It was an honor to be here. Take care.